Um, yes, you've got a, a Bible. It's um, Mark chapter 2, um, verses 13 to 22. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Lisa, thanks very much uh, for reading for us. Uh, let me uh, pray uh, before we start. Uh, Heavenly Father, do thank you uh, so much uh, for your word. Thank you for the truth that it contains. Uh, Father, help me uh, speak clearly uh, this evening. I pray that uh, you would uh, ready all of our hearts that we might hear, uh, not my words, uh, but uh, you speaking uh, to us and give us the strength and the courage that we need uh, to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. It'd be a great help to me if you're able to, uh, to follow along with me uh, this evening. Uh, we're continuing our series through Mark's Gospel. Uh, last week we saw that uh, Jesus is the king of the kingdom uh, and that somehow... Inside the kingdom of God, there is the forgiveness of sins. And the question that's been percolating in our minds as we've been journeying, journeying through Mark's gospel to this point uh, is, well, he's the king, there is a kingdom. How does one become a member of that kingdom? And the answer that we see, and we're going to see tonight, uh, the answer that we're given is completely scandalous. It was scandalous to the original hearers. And it's scandalous to us today. But it is the best possible news. The news that salvation is a free gift. A free gift from God. A gift that we could never earn. A gift that it is never too late to receive. This is Jeffrey Dahmer. He was born in 1960. And his life was cut short when he was brutally murdered in 1994. 
It doesn't look like he or his family were churchgoers, and there doesn't appear to have been very much Christian input into his life. But it is claimed that a few weeks uh, before he was beaten to death, uh, he made a confession of faith. He gave his life to Christ. And so standing, as we do, on this side of the cross, uh, we would, in our hearts, give thanks to God, wouldn't we, for that? And we'd look forward uh, to meeting uh, Jeffrey uh, in the new heavens and in the new earth. We'd say that salvation is by faith alone and absolutely not something that we can earn. We'll come back to Jeffrey uh, later in the evening. But as we look at uh, verses 13 through 17, I want us to see three things. I want us to see the scene, just to frame it for ourselves. I want us then to look inside and see the problem. And then I want us to see the scandal of grace. So firstly, the scene, verses 13 through 16. So our reading starts with uh, two very highly charged events. Uh, The first is the person that Jesus calls, and then what Jesus does with the person that he has called. Uh, Take a look with me uh, at verses 13 uh, through 14. Uh, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Uh, Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Jesus is teaching his people about uh, the kingdom of God. And as he tells them about this, Mark writes this in a way that suggests that the interaction that Jesus has with Levi is a function of what he's been teaching the people about the kingdom. That Levi is, if you like, a worked example of the truths of what the kingdom of God is like. Just as Jesus had called the other disciples He now calls Levi. Now, uh, it's hard for us to appreciate just how striking uh, this is for Jesus uh, to call Levi. Uh, If Jesus had asked a PR firm, a local PR firm, you know, who should you have? Who should I have on my team? My squad of 12, who should I have? Uh, Levi's name wouldn't even have made the bottom of the list. That's all because Levi was a tax collector. Now, in Jesus' time, when the Romans conquered a land, they extracted taxes from the land. Now, for the people, uh, there was no self-assessment form to fill in, send to Rome, and wait for men in bowler hats to go through your income and your deductions and send you back a nice letter saying what they wanted. No, tax collection in those days was more like this. Tax collection was a franchise, okay? Uh, Today, the Domino's Pizza Shop, uh, the franchisee of the shop, pays a slug of money at the start to the Domino's people. And they say, great, you can now set up a shop selling Domino's pizzas, and in return, the Domino's Pizza people won't open up another shop within a certain radius of you. You have free reign to sell Domino's pizzas in that area. And the profit you make comes from the more pizzas that you can sell. Now, in a similar way, although obviously nowhere near as tasty, uh, Levi has paid uh, a huge sum of money up front to the Romans to collect taxes from the area. In return, he's granted exclusive rights to collect certain taxes. His booth, did you notice it was beside the lake? 
Uh, and so he's probably collecting business taxes from fishing. And so Levi, given he's paid over all this money to Rome, is highly motivated to collect as much tax revenue uh, as he can to cover his investment. And if people didn't want to pay, um, he would just levy fines, sometimes arbitrarily, uh, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and if people didn't want to pay, he'd call his friendly Roman soldiers in, and at the end of a sharp spear or a sharp sword, he'd encourage people to pay their taxes. Tax collectors were incredibly wealthy people. Now, tax collectors were seen as having sided with the enemy. Yeah, they were moles, they were informants, they were ruthless, they were greedy. People without principles. And so, to the Jews who did obey the law, the tax collectors were seen as unclean. Uh, As a result, the tax collectors, they couldn't act as witnesses in court. They were expelled from synagogues. They were seen as robbers. And in fact, they were reviled so much that the synagogue leaders passed a ruling that meant you could, with impunity, lie to a tax collector. There was no comeuppance if you just lied your way with uh, tax collectors. So, a few weeks ago, we saw the leper. The leper was a person whose disease made him an outsider. And now Mark introduces us to a person whose profession makes him an outsider. He is every bit an outsider as much as the leper. And here on the banks of the lake, Jesus does something that the whole community at the time would have thought was quite extraordinary. Take a look with me. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, the way the Greeks constructed here, it tells us that Jesus was the main event at this gathering. Everyone was reclining at table with Jesus. He was the principal guest at this event. And for us, this doesn't sound like a big deal. So he had a dinner party. Jesus was there. No biggie. But in that culture at that time, table fellowship, which is what this was, table fellowship indicated a mutual desire for closeness, for friendship, for an inclining of your hearts toward one another. So to have table fellowship with Levi and his unsavory friends is quite a statement. And this prompts the question from those who knew the commandments of God in verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then in verse 17, Jesus uh, responds, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So that's the scene. That's the scene that we're faced with. Next, we come to the problem. Now, in our text, we see that those who were considered the religious elite, uh, the Pharisees, they saw Jesus with the reprobates and they were completely shocked. What on earth is Jesus doing with these people? Jesus is the one who heals broken bodies, who drives out demons, cleanses lepers, teaches like no one they've ever heard of before, and claims to forgive sins. And here he is in the company of bad people. 
Those bad people, say the Pharisees. And right here, right in that moment, the little vignette, we have a snapshot of the problem of the human heart. Yeah, we think that God is he's, he's the same as the Pharisees. We think that God grades us on a curve. We think that because this is how our culture trains us, and it actually it's also the way that our own hearts work, we think that God grades on a curve. The good people are on one side, uh, and the bad people are down on the other side. And grading on a curve, well, it means that um, we think that uh, there are some people who are good, some people who are bad, and there are some people who are kind of in the middle. But wherever we think we are, we always tend to find ourselves just on the right-hand side of that blue line. Just, yeah, we know, we know we're not the best, but we're just about okay. Because there are other people further down the curve who don't do as well. You've got, if you like, Mother Teresa at one end, Hitler on the other, and everyone is somewhere in the middle, but everyone seems to be just to the right of the blue line, as if there's some pass mark that we need to get through. There's some level, if you like, of goodness that we need to attain in order to be acceptable to God. And as long as we're doing better than other people, we're on the right side of that blue line, ahead of other people that we're acceptable. That's grading on a curve. And the danger is that our friends who aren't Christians, yet they think that God works in this way. They think that God grades on a curve. And as a result, the danger is that they'll think that good people, good people go to heaven, and that the bad people, they're excluded. They think the good are in, and the bad are out. But Jesus just destroys these categories of good and bad. Now, in our reading, we see that the Pharisees, uh, they're legalists. Yeah, they think that the only way to be made right with God is to obey the rules. So they frown on Jesus associating himself with the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors and the sinners, on the other hand, they're people that say it's not about following the rules, that God loves us all. God is love. He loves us all. Do whatever makes you happy. Don't hurt others too much. And that's enough for God. God is love. God loves us. But here we see that Jesus shows us that both of those positions are wrong. Yeah? Neither of those ways is the way into the kingdom. It's not that the good are in and the bad are out. It's not that because God is love, he will allow me into his kingdom and he wouldn't exclude me. There's another measure. There's another sort of test. And that brings us to our third point, the scandal of grace. Now, uh, in response to the Pharisees questioning why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, we read that Jesus tells them in verse 17 that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. And he uses the image of a doctor to help us to see the way into the kingdom. Because we are all sick. Sick with the effects of sin in our lives. And if it isn't dealt with, it will kill us. It will kill us for all eternity. 
And that's why Jesus says that the key test is not trying to save ourselves like the Pharisees uh, or assume that God doesn't care like the tax collectors and the sinners. The key test is whether or not we will see a doctor. For us to admit that we're sick and willing to come to a doctor. So the key test is whether or not we have the humility to know that the problem that we have is beyond our ability to fix. Yeah, The key test is whether we have the humility to know that the problem that we have is beyond our ability to fix. Now the Pharisees, well, they didn't think that they had a problem, did they? Uh, to their minds, they were well enough. Uh, they were doing all the things they thought that God had asked, or as many as they thought reasonable for God to ask them to do. And they were proud of their efforts. The reason they didn't need a doctor was because they could manage the sickness of sin, they thought, by themselves. But Levi, incredibly, he knew that his problem was well beyond his ability to fix. Uh, As an outcast, he knew that there was no way that by his own efforts he could be made right with God. He knew he had a sickness in his soul. He knew that the problem that he had, no amount of money was going to fix it. He knew he needed a doctor, a doctor for his soul. And Jesus is the perfect doctor, isn't he? Uh, we know that. I and mean, in four brief ways, you know, Jesus is always available. Yeah, There's no struggling to get an appointment or being stuck on the waiting list or trying to get through at 8 a.m. Yeah. Secondly, Jesus always makes a perfect diagnosis. Yeah, He knows our deepest need is to be forgiven. Uh, Jesus provides the perfect cure, being made right, with God. Extraordinary, Jesus even pays the bill. Yeah, because he lives the life that we should have lived and then he dies the death that we deserve in our place. He's the perfect doctor. And Levi had the humility to come to Jesus, to follow Jesus. It isn't that the good are in and the bad are out. It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out it's the amazing truth isn't it that it's the humble who are in Uh, even in the case of someone as repulsive to the people as Levi was at the time for all the people he'd extorted swindled coerced and stolen from Jesus says yes I will pay the price for you even paying for his rebellion against God. The the very thing, if you like, that marked Levi's entire life. God says, even that rebellion, I will pay. And God's love for us is so strong that he's willing to pay that price, even though it meant sending his only son to die on a Roman cross to save us. And remember, it's not because uh, Levi deserved it. No, Levi failed at every single level. The gift was offered by grace alone. An unmerited gift. Levi was a vile offender. And as the hymn relays, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Now, we might say that we know this. We might say, Sabi, you haven't told me anything that I don't know already. But do we really know just how scandalous this is? 
I wonder if you really believe the scandal in our hearts. Let's come back to uh, to Jeffrey. Uh, this is the man who was beaten to death uh, a few short weeks after giving his life to Christ, so we're told. This is Jeffrey three years before his murder. Now, the account of Jeffrey's life is a little bit more complicated uh, than I suggested. Uh, Jeffrey was arrested in 1991. And he was convicted of uh, the murder, the mutilation, the cannibalization, uh, necrophilia and dismemberment of 17 men over 13 years. He was one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. And it's claimed that he did give his life to Jesus a few weeks before his cellmate beat him to death. I wonder, how do we feel about Jeffrey now? And I wonder how we feel about the scandal of grace. Maybe we're sitting a little less comfortably in our chairs now. If the account of Jeffrey makes us slightly uncomfortable in our seat, then then can I ever so gently suggest that maybe we have a place in our hearts, maybe a small place, where we still think that salvation has got to have something to do with what we do. Our hearts whisper to us that goodness must count for something. Surely, Lord, you can't mean to save someone like Jeffrey. Now, there's always a tension, isn't there, and a desire in our hearts to prove ourselves to God. Uh, We don't want salvation as a free gift. You know, in some way, inside each one of us, there's a little Pharisee. We just want to prove to the Lord that I am worth being on his team. We want to earn our way to God. But the scale of our sin, the scale of our rebellion, is just, it's just too large. I mean, we, we may be repulsed by what Jeffrey did. But friends, you know, God looks at our rebellion against him. And he is every bit as repulsed by our sin, by our rebellion. Uh, the grace of God, thankfully, The love of God is larger still. And it's only those who admit that they need a doctor who come forward and receive the healing balm of the gospel who have the humility to come to the doctor who are in. To have the nauseating stench of our sin quenched in the blood of the true doctor. Only those who have the humility to come to God with nothing in their hands can know the kingdom of God. Those with nothing. And as one theologian and wag said, all you need to enter the kingdom of God is nothing. But most people don't have nothing. The case of Levi reveals to us that the love of God is so great that he will come to anyone who turns to him. 
Uh, and there is obviously a danger here. I know this. There's a danger here uh, that people will turn that into license. We'll see that extravagant grace and say, I'm good to go. That's, yeah, let sin abound that grace may abound as well. They'll say that uh, God loves me just as I am. It's true. It is true. Uh, for those who will turn to Christ, he does love you just as you are. And it's true that he doesn't call us to clean up our lives before we come to him. But God also loves us too much to allow us to stay where we are. He loves us too much to be mired in our sinful way of life. And so God places his spirit uh, in our hearts that we would know and respond to what he has done for us. That we might want to live a life for him. In response, we surrender, don't we, our old way, and we joyfully submit to Christ and long to become more and more like him. For those who receive the gospel, we will, we will have lives that are changed by it. For some of us, the change will be marked and it will be quick. For others, it will be slow and gradual. And maybe it won't always be a smooth progression upwards. There'll be setbacks from time to time. But the overall trajectory should be clear. Yeah? We are gradually becoming more and more like Christ, bearing more and more of the fruit of the Spirit. So friends, please, don't be dissatisfied with a life that isn't growing to become more and more like Christ. Don't be satisfied with a life that looks as if it's stuck. Ask God for help. He will give it to you. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, has a spot where he dwells on the work of the Spirit uh, in the life of the believer. And he writes this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs, well, they needed doing. So you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, for those of us who have trusted in Christ and trusted in him alone, we will be changed. And we can see that change in Levi, did you notice that? Take a look in our reading. We can see at least uh, two things. Uh, firstly, uh, Levi gives up the treasure on earth. Uh, Levi left his tax booth. Levi gave up a highly lucrative place of employment. It was a one-way ticket for him. He can never go back to being a tax collector. Uh, the t- disciples, some of the other disciples, well, they were fishermen, weren't they? And they could always go back to fishing if this Jesus thing didn't pan out. And indeed, we read in John's Gospel, don't we, that they did indeed uh, return to fishing when Jesus died. But here, 
Matthew is completely burning his boats. He's willing to give up all that the world offers in return for having Jesus as his first priority. And it's a good question for us. Are there things in our lives that are more valuable than Christ? That as we look at where we spend our time, our money, our emotional energy, our thoughts, I wonder, does that reveal areas in our own lives where we haven't completely surrendered to Christ? Uh, Secondly, uh, Levi introduces his friends to Jesus. Did you see that? He throws a big party, a big gathering for his friends to meet with Jesus. He wants his friends to know who it is that he lives for. That's a great question for us as well. Are, are we, are we invitational people? Will we invite people to events that are put on here? Uh, you know, maybe the women's breakfast that we just had, the men's golfing evening. Maybe inviting them to come along Sunday by Sunday. Will we invite people perhaps to meet Christ when we read the Bible one-on-one with them? Will we pray for opportunities to speak to our friends and our family about Jesus? The grace that we see revealed in Jesus is scandalous. That God should love us and send his only son to a cross in our place. That he should adopt us, once his enemies, into his family so that we can call him our heavenly father. Not just now, but throughout all eternity. That that grace, when it breaks into our hearts, it will change us. It will transform us. It will empower us. And as we come to the table uh, this evening, allow the Spirit of God as we uh, receive communion to just to quicken our hearts to these truths. Uh, As we eat the bread... Remember his body broken for us as we drink the grape juice. His blood poured out for us. And ask him to make those truths palpable and real in our hearts. That his scandalous grace toward each one of us would transform us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an incredible Uh, truth this is the scandal of grace that you would bring Levi to you that you would bring us to you that you would do that at such a great cost your son Dying in our place for us. Bringing us into your family. Indwelling in our hearts by your spirit. Allowing us to call you father. And Jesus to call us friend. An eternal truth. By your spirit would you work in our hearts. Would you remind us afresh of that incredible love and would you stir our hearts as we receive communion this evening that we might know the costs 
of bringing us home. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.